This week, I'm speaking to the godfather of retail, Mr. Johnny Bowden. After starting his career in the city and realising that he wasn't doing what he loved, Johnny founded Bowden in 1991 as one of the first mail-order fashion businesses and quickly gained popularity with its quality clothing, playful marketing and the brand's unique tone of voice. Now creative director of Bowdoin, Johnny has watched the business flourish into the household brand that it is now, worth over an incredible £300 million and employs over 2,000 members of staff. I had the complete pleasure of speaking to Johnny at his quirky HQ in London, surrounded by colourful clothes and house music playing when I arrived. It was such an insightful conversation where we chatted about following the path less trodden, what it takes to scale up a brand with a creative brain and how to stay true to your mission. Oh, and please make sure you listen to his letter at the end, as it's a very special one indeed. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker, and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Johnny. Hello, Holly. I can't tell you what an honour it is to meet you again. You probably won't remember this, but Sophie and I came to visit you in 2008 uh, when we just founded Not on the High Street, and it was like meeting the retail Pope. You were the godfather of British retail, the marketing guru of catalogues, and we always aspired to be more Bowdoin. So I'm sitting in your office. I sat in your office last time we met and it has had a rather lovely facelift, I would say, from when we last met you. Yes. You have wonderful mood boards surrounding us. We've walked through the halls full of clothing and everywhere that you look, it just oozes Bowdoin. I remember you had a sign at the time, I don't know if you still have that, mm. saying ugly building, nice clothes. Yes. Do you still have that well, sign? Well, we, we, sadly, it's not so ugly anymore. It's not. It's not an ugly building. I'm glad you got rid of it. It was such a good looking building now. Anyway, I'm so lucky to be sitting with you thank here today. You. And so thank, thank you for coming. Thank you. I wanted to kick off, if you wouldn't mind, in telling me a little bit about your story, how Bowdoin came about. Um, well, if I go into the depths of time, I was very conventionally brought up. I went to Eton, I went to Oxford, and then my life kind of fell apart after that. Great start. And when I uh, I had to decide what to do, and I became a, a city boy, but unfortunately, I was completely rubbish at it, and I hated it. Um, and I then... Uh, two amazing things happened. I, when I was sent to America, I got left some money by a childless uncle who was a lovely man. And uh, with that money, I was able to reinvent myself. But I also, when I was in America, I noticed people were buying things by catalogue. 
And I thought, oh, this is quite a good idea. And about the same time, I met Sophie, who is now my wife, uh, who's pretty punchy. And she said to me, um, you are a failure. You had the most amazing <laughs> start in life, uh, but you're squandering it. And I said, fair point. Um, but I've got this idea of setting up a, a catalogue. And she said, well, if you don't do it, I'm going to leave you. <laughs> so since I rather liked fancied her. her and liked her a lot, I thought, well, that's a, quite a reasonable challenge. And I, in 1991, I decided to sell nine, sorry, eight menswear products. And without um, going into too much detail, I haven't really looked back. So you say that you had a sort of more conventional start. Yes. You, your drive and where it came from. I've heard you talk about your father um, and how hard it was in terms of he didn't necessarily agree with this this career path that you were about to take. Did that drive you in any way? Um, I think at the time when, you know, when he was disapproving, I'd already made up my mind to do what I wanted to do. And, and in fact, Sophie helped me ignore my parents' slightly negative attitude towards what I was up to. But I think what, what did drive me was the fact that uh, nothing I did was ever quite good enough for him. And I was also very conscious of the fact that I, I had this incredible start in life and I felt very unfulfilled. And it was only in doing what I'm doing now that I've found true fulfillment. And you used to draw pictures or take pictures um, of people's shoes. Yes, I was, I was, I mean, I think I might be arrested now for what I used to do then. But when I, <laughs> uh, at my, I was sent away to boarding school at a young age, which I love. And I really enjoyed uh, boarding school, prep school, because I was, I had a half sister, but I, she married when I was young. So I was an only child, really. And it was really good fun, pillow fights, all the rest of it. And um, some of the boys had very beautiful mothers and they used to dress very elegantly. And I used to take photographs of them uh, when they came to the school. And what did I was, they think of that? They didn't really notice, I don't think. Okay. They're probably rather excited, actually. Sort of, you know, um, what's that film? Oh, crikey. Dustin Hoffman, Ms. Romson, yeah. No, I, I flatter myself that I was Dustin Hoffman. But the, <laughs> the, um, the, I'd always, I was always interested in fashion. And I, when I was at Eton, I used to go up to the Portobello Road and I would buy Donegal tweed overcoats for 50p. Oh my God. Uh, and high top converses from a shop called Flip in Covent Garden. I, you know, my, my room was covered in photographs of, of models and both male and female, quite metrosexual. There was a particularly good looking bloke, actually. A, a uh, clothing brand called Dormier, and he was very chiselled. And it was a big interest for me, but it was uh, not encouraged by my my family. I can uh, imagine. So, so I had to, you know, it, it, well, suppress it. Um, yes, I mean, if you're if you're told you're it's a stupid thing, you, you know, it's quite hard to. My father was strong, and, and he was he was intelligent, but he just had a slightly different idea of what what life was about to mine. One of my missions in life is to help women um, in business. 95% of the 
um, partners that sell on Not in the High Street are female, um, some turning over one to two million pounds each now a year. But one of my biggest learnings on the journey I've taken is that creative men aren't necessarily given the same permissions. I want to give the same permission to men to quit their jobs and start creative business, follow their dreams, whether they're an artist, a jam maker, a fashion designer. Um, so you were, you know, not set on this path from the beginning and you had to make it happen yourself. Can you tell me a bit about that shift from that moment that you decided I'm a rubbish trader or what you were doing in the city and you made that shift? Was it, did you find your true calling from the second you started? Yes. I, I um, when you have been a complete failure at something, it, it it is so depressing and you see all your friends being significantly more happy and fulfilled than you are. And when I was sent to America, uh, I was sent to New York and I, at the time I was very excited about working in New York because I, the film Wall Street had depicted this world of go-getting men and stunningly beautiful American women kind of, you know, falling at men's feet. And I thought, this is the life. Um, and in fact, I was really bad at what I did. And I used to go out to supper with, with these, um, my American friends and they would all talk about their jobs very excitedly. And I just couldn't. I couldn't compete because I just couldn't talk about what mm. I was doing. So actually, I mean, frankly, I could have ended up running a restaurant or running a airline or you know, anything was going to be better than what I was doing. Not no disrespect to my employer, but I just wasn't suited to it. So, you know, the actual job, what I ended, well, what I've ended up doing is almost irrelevant. It was the fact that I found something that I was better suited to and it was, you know, anything was going to be better. And if you look back now, what advice would you give a man maybe in a similar position? You you started right at the beginning, let's say, of your life, your career, and you did make that switch. You probably know, as I do, gentlemen who haven't been able to make that shift in their life. Is there a mantra that you live by? Is there something that you've well, I think, given I advice think to friends about I'm how to shift? I'm going to talk shift? about it in my letter, but I think you have to do something that you really love and that you're you're good at. Um, and if you can find that thing, you're you're very very lucky. And actually, nothing is more important than finding that thing that ticks both those boxes. And would you agree that it's more difficult for men? To break into this creative world. Well, than it is since for women. we're talking about men, by definition, it's a sexist question. Yeah. I will now deploy some sexist language in reply, which is I do think that men, a lot of men, are conditioned to see themselves as the provider. And that means that I think men feel they've got to earn lots of money and they're willing to give up happiness in order to do that. And I certainly, that was the, 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 what drove me into banking because I thought that was the, you know, what the you right did. career path. Yep. Yeah. And I would say to men, you know, that, that I'm not suggesting that it's wrong that men want to earn lots of money. And, but I think my real point is that it's only by finding something you really enjoy, uh, and that you're really good at that you will both be happy and earn more money. And funny enough, your father was actually creative. Yes, he was, yes. He's, he was a keen gardener, loved yeah. flower arranging. He drew. Yeah. 
did he get comfortable? Did, did you think he maybe thought um, he was secretly envious that you were in a, a day and age maybe that was allowing you this opportunity? No, I don't think so. I, I don't. I think he was too conditioned by a strong sense of duty. His father had been killed in the first war. He never knew his own father. Um, my mother's father was a soldier. You know, we came from a very conventional background where duty was all that meant duty to your queen, you know, to your regiment, to your country. Uh, those things were significantly more important than anything else. And actually, you know, the idea of fulfillment was, which we all have been brought up with is completely alien to that. It's not, it, it's a, it's a generational thing. Um, and I think, you know, I shouldn't say it, but I think we maybe have gone a bit too far the other way. I can agree with you there, actually. Yeah. What's so amazing about you is that you realised so early on who you were, what you were passionate about, and you followed that. Well, I, I didn't really. I mean, I know. It, but uh, early, in, as in not ten years ago, it was it was enough, wasn't it? In the I mean, beginning, it, took, that it been... took me till I was thirty. Oh, really? To get to that realisation. Okay. I, I think you know, one of my my. I, I wish I'd been a little bit more honest earlier. So you were 30, and I know you've spoken about this encouragement or tough encouragement mm. from your wife, Sophie. Um, the amount of people I see that go to work and fundamentally sort of hate what they do, and this, um, as you mentioned, not touching on passion. And I do get the mortgage you know, constraints, and yeah. I do get the reality of life. Yeah. But when you look at people and friends and family who might not be happy in their careers or jobs, what advice would you give in terms of you can't abandon everything immediately, but actually you do want to find a path to a happier place? Yes. I mean, I think the problem is once you've got the mortgage, it does become a lot harder. And I think I would always say to younger people, um, you know, don't commit to expensive things that, that are going to constrain you. And I think one of the many problems that young people, in fact, all people have is that they develop expensive hobbies, tastes. We're so conditioned to expect this, you know, swanky lifestyle, foreign holidays, cars, weekends, you know, A property bu you busy, social, bu busy social life. Um, and actually, in order to succeed, you have to jettison those things. I mean, you know, I was very lucky to be left this money, so I, I don't want to sound smug, but I certainly in the first 10 years of the business, I, you know, I worked pretty much every weekend, didn't take much holiday, um, didn't have a very expensive lifestyle. And, you, you know, you do have to make those sacrifices. So once you've got the big mortgage, you know, you may have to sell your house. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I had to put my house on the line. And I think if you're not willing to do that, you probably don't deserve to succeed. You know, you have got to make those sacrifices. And the great thing is if you've got a, I was lucky to have a lovely supportive wife who was very happy, you know, touch wood, our marriage was strong enough that it didn't need those toys to survive. And I think, you know, if you can't make those sacrifices, you're, it's not going to work. You're a creative right side of the brainer. That's what yeah. I call. You've grown a business to 
320 million pounds building this brilliant brand so firstly you know and I know I said at the moment I walked in congratulations for becoming part of British culture Um, I think you we're now living in an age of creative founders those who didn't go to business school or let's say have a business degree Brian Chesky was a product designer who founded Airbnb Evan Sharp was a designer who founded Pinterest Joe Malone left school with Without qualifications. I got a D in my A-levels in business and certainly never had a day in business school. I think it's proving that you can create successful business but not have that classic background. What are the best things that you've learned growing a business to this size but being a creative right side of the brainer? I think you need to be good at both the right and the left side. And if you're stronger in one, you need to make sure you you hire people who are good at the other. I think the best thing, the best consistent thing that I've tried to do is employ people who are better than me. You know, I'm pretty weak at many parts of this business. And initially I did everything and then I realised I was pretty... You answered every email, didn't you? Yeah, I I, I just sit in the call centre, take the calls and and then you you realise that that there are lots of things you're not very good at. I think hiring really good people, but also the most important thing by miles, in my view, is being honest about what your uh, strengths and weaknesses are. And even now... I'm getting feedback, which I feel like a baby, actually. You know, I'm, I do <laughs> idiotic things and somebody points them out to me and I can't believe how foolish and uh, insensitive and stubborn I've been. Um, and I don't think you can grow either as a business or as an individual without coping. You have to cope with some fairly frank feedback and that's what enables you to grow. You said, um, t- touching on that point, entrepreneurs are irrational, emotional, and I realised I was a shit manager. Then I became chairman, and I wasn't very good at that either. Now I'm creative director. The things that make me most excited are looking at product, going shopping, designing a shop. In terms of product and photography, visual touch points, I am very confident in my taste. Am I right in assuming you had to go through a journey to come to those conclusions, understanding yourself, getting more confident in your skin. Spot on. I mean, the journey, terrible cliche, they're still continuing. And and it may be that my role will change again. Um, um, I could bore you with why I got to this place. But but fundamentally, I will go back to what I said earlier, that, that you have to hire people who are better than you. And I found a better managing director. And then I found a better chairman. Uh, and I'm, I may find a better creative director and you, you just have to be very open and listen to what both your customers and your staff are telling you. And the business needs at any point of yeah. time in that journey. Yeah. Have you found it difficult to, you know, you used to answer all of the emails, do absolutely everything in the call centre. Yeah. So then you could just move a little bit forward and yeah. you could hire people in and yeah. you had to let that go. And yeah. then you had to watch people do it maybe in a different way to you. And then as you've grown and grown, you've hired a CEO, you've become that creative director. Is it difficult to um, release and let go of that control, even though you know you must have better people? 
Um, it's very easy to let go when they're better than you. And it's a huge relief. And you go, oh, crikey, why did I even think I could do that? Um, it's very hard when they're worse than you. And, you know, every day there will be something that somebody does and you go, not every day, actually, probably every week you see something that somebody does and you think, crikey, I could have done that better. But actually, you know that business is not scalable if you do everything. So you have to find a way of communicating to them how to do it better as you, as you might have done it. And, in, you know, if they're good, they'll say, yeah, fair point. Um, I'll do it better next time. And if they're good people, they do. And Thankfully, that feeling doesn't happen too often. And I'm sure over your journey, though, you've had times where that wasn't the actual reaction that you've, you know, the amount of people you must have hired over this course of 25 yeah. years that I know on the journey, you've gone through some serious highs and lows that you suffered massive burglary and a deception from a colleague. Fraud, yeah. Yeah. So can you talk about those times and how that shaped your business? Um, I mean, there, there are, these were specific problems um, to do with the, the burglaries and the fraud were to do with trust. I mean, I've become quite um, ruthless on that. Um, when you say ruthless? If somebody lies to me about anything, they're out. You know, honesty, they, honesty is such an important backbone of any business. And if somebody um, misleads you, uh, if somebody's willing to lie about um, what they did at the weekend, and they're probably going to lie about the big things. I mean, I'm, it's a bit of a weird thing. I'm quite good at detecting fraudulent people now and socially as well. Um, I won't go into too much, but there's some characters I've come across who a lot of have seduced a lot of people, and I know they're fraudsters. They're just fraudulent people. Some of them are, you know, quite senior businessmen in in, in Iran today, and I just I know they're dodgy because you went through that experience yes. with someone you trusted yes. and plus you can spot you can spot them there the way they dress. You know, they're, 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 it's so obvious to me, and I, I have a bit of a sixth sense about that. But that's when you nearly lose everything, you you get quite attuned to. And that um, was through a huge burglary. How how much we had did two that... we had two burglaries. Two, and, yeah. did, did that, and that set the company back a lot. A yeah, lot. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell me about that setback and how you, you know, how do you pick yourself up from something like that? Um, you you need a, a strong wife, uh, and in my case, actually, I I knew that there wasn't an alternative for the. You know, there were so many good things about what I was doing that that I just had to, you know, to use my mother's favourite phrase, kick on. You know, just just because I, there was, what was I going to do? Just collapse in a heap and go back into the city? I just thought, crikey, um, you know, I, I've got no alternative. I basically enjoy what I do. I've just been shafted by an, a complete um, unmentionable character who has then went on to do it to lots of other people, quite interestingly. Oh. And you just have to, you know, dust yourself down. And, and, and Sophie was incredible. And she said, you know, darling, whatever it takes, you know, we'll get through this. And, you know, we did. As you're listening to this episode, I'm so glad you found your way to Conversations of Inspiration. And I hope you've taken some wisdom from it. Keep listening. It gets even better. 
Every week, we explore the highest highs and the lowest of lows of some of the nation's favourite founders, creatives and entrepreneurs as they share their stories with me. Having recorded over 130 episodes, there are so many incredible guests to choose from, every one of them sharing their experiences, advice, and my most anticipated part of each episode, a letter to their younger self. If you're not sure where to start, head to holly.co, where you can browse all our back catalogue by collection. There are buckets of podcasts you can choose from, such as Business as a Force for Good, to Female Founders, or perhaps hearing stories from those with dyslexia. Needless to say, this unique library has changed my life completely, and I'm positive it will have the same effect on you. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. So 25 years on, you're still one of the most successful British brands and you've more recently gone on to the high street. You're conquering international. Has the DNA of your business changed and how does the business feel today? Of course, you're not answering the telephone now to all customers, but how does the business DNA feel in comparison to when you started? Well, uh, thank you for your kind words, Holly, because I'm not... Uh, one can never be complacent. I mean, as you know, you're only as good as your last range. Uh, Retail is ruthless. Um, people can easily, uh, you know, there's so many competitors now. There are very few barriers to entry, lots of new businesses coming into the market, which is great, good for us in many ways, but quite scary in others. My objective is to keep the good bits and to sort out the bad bits. I'm not convinced we do it all the time. I think in becoming more professional, which you have to do, you do lose bits of the character, but there are bits of the old character that were bad. You know, Mm -hmm. there there was less consistency. People probably weren't so well treated. And I can think of of a few employees who left who we didn't treat very well, you know, Mm. and it wasn't uh, quite a few who left who we did treat well and they weren't any good, but there were a few who did leave. And I feel, oh, that was a shame. We should have kept them, but they weren't treated very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've got a bit more professional now. And it's kind of, you know, I, I would say we could do better, um, but I'd like to think it's still a fun place to work. And um, we throw a very good office party, which means a lot to me. And you've got the building for it now. We've got a, we got a better have building, You haven't yeah. had the first Christmas party No, yet, well, we have, we have a summer party. That's a our summer. thing. summer. When's that? Well, it's well, just it, been. Just, it's just been. been. Yeah, and it's an so all-day affair. So you the building. We haven't had a big... We're going we're gonna to have one here, but uh, I, I prefer summer parties because there's more you can do outside. It's funny how the world has changed so much in these 25 years. Mm. I always say how hard it was starting not on the high street in 2006 without any social media or any advancements in tech that we see today. Was it true, you famously said at a board meeting in the 90s, that retail on the internet would never take off? Uh, I did say that. I mean, I've said some idiotic things in my life. That probably tops the list. Um, what Thank you God forget, for us, they did. It did. It did. But actually, I mean, it was a stupid thing to say, and I, and, and I obviously made a big mistake. But in, I won't try and defend myself, but if you can remember in the early mm-hmm. days of the internet what a nightmare it was, Whoa. the modems, 
the egg timers. It was impossible to... Well, no one would put their credit card details Yeah, it was really slow to get the pages to load. And my point was that actually flicking through a catalogue was a lot more pleasurable and quick than trying to get onto a website. Yeah. Something that is very close to my heart is creative marketing. I think you are, and you'll have to take these compliments because I'm, mm-hmm. I can already tell that you, you don't take them, but I want to tell you that you are a complete genius in this area. Mm-hmm. Bowdoin was always an inspiration to me in business and still is. I still think it's so utterly inspiring, the catalogues we get through our letterboxes. Post in general is so boring, so mm-hmm. grey, and it's so refreshingly good, um, your catalogues. But You've always inspired with your Tim Walker style of photography and that wonderful tone of voice. Mm. And I'm not going to ask where that comes from because everyone can hear exactly where it comes from. It, it must have started with you and your, your take on life. Am yeah. I right in thinking well, that? Well, yes. I mean, you're very kind, Holly, but I, somebody once said to me that um, in the early years that receiving a catalogue was the least interesting and least important event in anybody's life. So you had to do whatever it took to grab their attention. So in my case, it was naming the business and calling the business after me. It was using lots of copy. It was using friends as models. It was using slightly arresting uh, imagery and turns of phrase and silly things, um, which we still try to do. But yes, it was... You know, we're, we're, we're not, we're not, um, curing cancer here. We're, we're selling clothes and we have to make it fun and different. And in, you know, that, that is something that matters a lot to me. If I was just selling a commodity product, I, I wouldn't be happy. I have to, you know, do something that feels a little bit more creative than that. I have two examples that we always talk about in the office. So we, we talk about you a lot, Johnny. First is when you did a sale catalogue that arrived in a brown paper bag. So it's a brown paper bag, everybody. Imagine this with your catalogue. And it said, you may need to breathe into this, insinuating that you're going to hyperventilate with excitement. I mean... Did you, at that time, I've got to believe that you didn't have anyone on your team telling you that that was a bad idea or data telling you there's no way that we can break even with this catalogue because you've now just gone and made us print a brown paper bag to have with that catalogue. Was that your vision? Was that you just saying, I, we need to break through here. We need uh, to grab people's I mean, attention. I, that was not, I, I I'm, hate to have to, that was not specifically my idea. But we had a team, we have a team who come up with these ideas. And as I said, it's it's all about disruption. It's it's all about, but there's a balance because you don't, you know, we're also in the style business. We, we, we need yes. to sell uh, clothes that women are going to feel a million dollars in. And, and you don't want to be too silly because some women find that a bit annoying and it's it's a difficult balance so for every woman like you who loves all that there is a slightly cynical woman who says oh it's all a bit silly and i I, i'm i'm a bit serious and i want you know i don't want that kind of um bullshit i just want nice sexy clothes yes so so it's 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 It's, always a balance it's a balance well i i am one of those women who think that that's just thank you bloody brilliant and the second and i must maybe mention this i certainly have mentioned it every christmas since 2014 was when i got an animated email from you on christmas day and it said 
The fact that you're secretly met us in your inbox when you should be scoffing sprouts suggested you're not unwinding well. Could you be suffering from one of these festive afflictions? And it goes on to list things such as your mother-in-law said, I wouldn't have done it like that for the third time. You've just realised the turkey has been upside down in the oven for two hours. You're not as thoughtful, your not so thoughtful sister-in-law has clearly given you a re-gifted present and you finish the email. You know, you shouldn't really be here, but since you are, we'd like to treat you to free delivery of all of our sale orders. Think of it as a little seasonal solidarity. Now go forth and try to have some fun. We'll see you on the other side. Love Johnny and all of us at Bowdoin House. It's, it's just brilliant because it's the confidence, mm. you know, think of how many emails we get in our inboxes. Yeah. And I actually find it extraordinary that people do not have that care and attention mm -hmm. to these messages that we're giving out mm. every day. Do you try and strive that every communication is impactful, that every time that we're communicating, it counts? I mean, it, that spirit, does I, I try and impose that that not impose a strong word encourage that attitude in in everything and it's in the communication it's in the product it's in the service um but really caring is infectious and i i at the risk of grandstanding i think um one of the benefits of being an owner from a founder is that although you can be an absolute nightmare and drive everybody bonkers, <laughs> the fact that you really care and you notice these things, mm -hmm. it, it's kind of annoying for the staff, but it's also quite stimulating because they feel that, you know, they're, they're working for an organisation that believes in excellence. The details. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, I, I'm a great believer in excellence. I think that excellence is a, you know, something that nobody ever talks about, really. But it's something that's very, very important. And it lifts our lives and our spirits. And we, you know, we want, uh, we want to cheer our customers up because it makes them feel good. Uh, it pays our wages um, and therefore make, and makes us feel good, too. You've always strived to do things differently. What tips would you give to anyone starting out or a small business? You know, my life is about small businesses. There's not much marketing budget. Can you talk about just what the essence of what people should try and do to stand out in a time where actually online, it makes it very competitive. You know, social media, everyone can get hold of it. Have you got any thoughts on that? I think, I mean, the most important thing I always say is you have to develop a product and a service that that's better than everybody else's. You know, you have to stand out because the marketplace is so crowded. And if you can't do anything better or different than anybody else, then, then don't, you know, try something that's, have another Just idea. Just don't do it. Just yeah. don't do it. So I also think that it's, it's actually surprising. It's more easy than you think to do better or different. And I think a lot of people get a bit obsessed about having a really, you know, very differentiated product. But in fact, you know, that's quite risky. And you're much better off being in a big, big market and having a tiny bit of that than trying to be, um, you know, have a big share of a small market. So the clothing is a nightmare in many ways because there are so many competitors but it's actually you know you will find customers out there um as long as you give them a reason to buy from you and i think 
of course, every business is different and every sector is different, but I, I'd go back to what I said earlier about being very honest. And I think you have to be critical, very critical of what you are doing. You know, I, I'm obviously very proud of what we do, but there are many parts of this business which could be a lot better. You always believe that you are, yeah, you're not looking for what you've done well. You're looking for what you're not doing well. Yes, yeah, so, well... I mean, you, you do need to celebrate, you know, make sure you're dialing up the things you're really good at, but also just being very honest about the things you're not very good at. And 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 I think that a lot of business people ignore um, those quite obvious facts that they're looking in the wrong places. And just on that sort of marketing element, when we were just um, discussing budgets and how to stand up, I know that you believe in treating your customers like your friends, not taking yourself too seriously, using humour internally, self-deprecation and Britishness, not showing off and just making things a bit fun at the core of your brand. But the landscape has changed completely. How are you navigating that? How are you navigating the new way of marketing, the new way of um, customer relations how are you finding it more difficult to um, connect, or actually are you finding technology is fueling that connection? I think, to be honest, it hasn't changed as much as people say. Obviously, you know, connection is quicker, but fundamentally, if you have got a great product and you present it in a in a witty way, the principles are much the same. You have to engage with the right brain and the left brain. You've got to engage with the customer's emotions, but you've also got to have the all the um, left brain stuff to support it, the quality, the value. Sending somebody a catalogue, you know, creating lovely imagery in a catalogue is, is no different to creating a lovely website, really. I think it's easy to get quite confused, but actually... If your product and your service are really good, people will talk about it. They're just talking about it through a slightly different, through slightly different media mediums. I think people can, it's very, very easy to get, um, spend a lot of money on the wrong things. And I, I think if you, if you're setting up it, it you know, you, you never really know what is mm. going to work. And, you know, we've tried, we tried lots of things, which have been a complete failure, which, which, very expensive consultants that you must do this. And mm -hmm. they've been a disaster. And did you know it was going to be a disaster? No, of course not. No. You know. No. You believed in it as well. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. Yes. Well, my hunch was, but you know, my hunch has been wrong on a few things. So you, I think you just have to try lots of things and, and see what works for you because every business is, is different. A different pattern, there's a different, a diff there's a different, different makeup. And you just don't. And I think, but the, the key thing is not to put all your eggs in one basket. I've heard your daughters describe you as one of the most hardworking people that they know. So this many years on, working the hours that you do, um, mm. I know I've read that you wake up at night still with worry. Um, I think it's the reason behind success, mm. um, you know, just blinking mm. sheer hard work. There's a perception of successful entrepreneurs that when you hit the jackpot, you just live off the good fortune. Mm -hmm. And But someone who has also uh, worked every hour probably since you started this business mm -hmm. and still I, I hear is working, you know, all the time. Can you tell me about your, I mean, I actually don't like the phrase work-life balance. I believe mm -hmm. in a happy life. That's yeah, yeah. one. But can you tell me about 
doing this for so long, mm. have you learned how to handle the the balances? I mean, probably not. I, I, you know, I, I'm convinced I've got it wrong, but I, I've, you know, I've, I've got a, I, I've found a way through it. Somebody once said that there are, if you're, if you're, you know, of, of a certain age, there are three key pressures in life, work, um, family and friends. You need, you need two out of the three well. I've definitely have sacrificed friendship for my work, which makes me a bit sad. And I've got some good friends, but I, I don't, I haven't, I don't work on friendships in the way that I used to. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a typical bloke. I don't ring people up and arrange mm-hmm. to do things. I might, you know, I'll, I'll have dinner um, with friends once in a while. Um, and I go to parties, but, but I, if I'm being really honest, a lot of things that, that uh, a lot of other people do, I kind of look at them and think, well, actually, you know, work is, is more fun. I mean, Noel Coward mm-hmm. once said, work is more fun than fun. And mm-hmm. actually finding a rewarding job, you know, I'm so lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, I have an amazing family. They are very supportive. You know, we have lovely holidays. We have nice weekends. It's not that bad. I mean, mm. uh, but I think my friends might say, oh, he's just, you know, I've lost him. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm a bit sad about that. But, you know, you, you can't have it all, really. Coming to the end, I just wanted to ask you a couple more questions. You said that I don't know anyone who has sold their business who is happy. The idea of having lots of cash scares me. I have a hunch you probably don't believe in retiring and yeah. I don't actually believe in what I feel yeah. is an outdated concept. I mean, work a little less for sure, but why would you stop as you're almost probably becoming the best versions of yourself? Yeah. Um, what are the, your thoughts on Johnny in the future? Well, it's interesting. My Sophie and I have this conversation quite a lot and I you know, it's easy for a wife to say, oh, you're a workaholic, you're a nightmare, we're never going to have a nice retirement. And I say to her, well, darling, can you paint a picture of what you think is the ideal thing? And she paints a picture of me wandering around European cities, (laughs) uh, you know, really bored and going to um, Gothic cathedrals, which is her thing, and me wanting dashing out to look at my emails uh, and you know I, I get physically sick if I'm not um, fully engaged with something I I, I don't know, I, I kind of collapse and I hate it I think I would like to carry on doing this I have a pretty amazing life I mean I really can't complain I've made money obviously I don't want my children to be too spoilt financially I have a lovely life uh, and she is quite, you know, she works as well. We have a pretty good time. And I, I, don't, I don't see happiness as being that, that, you know, another life would be any, any better, really. I use the analogy that running your own business is like being on one heck of a roller coaster. Mm. Can I ask you, um, Johnny, what's your proudest moment or one of your greatest highs so far on this journey? I think... In the early years, I used to answer the telephone all all day, and there was it was punctuated by a period in, at lunchtime when I used to go to the warehouse and check every parcel because in those days there was no automated picking um, um, device, so you could easily make 
there were picking errors and, and lovely Barry who ran our warehouse and he could make, he could pick the wrong thing from the shelves. And I, I really determined that customers should get what they ordered. And so I used to check all the parcels. And because I was on the telephones for the first four years, I used to, you know, I'd recognize when I was doing the checking, uh, some names of, of customers or they were acquaintances or they were friends. And there was one day when I checked the parcels, probably we were sending out probably 300 parcels one day. I didn't recognize any names. And I thought, no, this is now a business because until then it felt oh. a bit like a hobby. So that was a pretty big moment. I think when we launched Mini Bowden and it all, it, the whole, everything sold out in a week, uh, that was a pretty good feeling. But also I think probably the biggest one recently has been America where you go to focus groups and um, we're very critical of ourselves and we asked them what we could do better. And there was one the other day where they, they couldn't think of anything. Oh, wow. And I thought, well, that's, that's quite good. I mean, of course, they're very polite, the Americans. But there were a few things, but you know, it, was, it was remarkably uncritical and that was a, that was a good feeling. Um, wow. And also, internally, when you hear staff talking as passionately about the brand as I do, that makes me very proud. And on that, your biggest low? I think um, my biggest low, uh, obviously, when I was defrauded and burgled, that was pretty bad. When I had to put my house, I nearly lost my house, and my wife was pretty tearful. That was pretty bad. I didn't, you know, I was quite relaxed about it because I knew it was going to be okay. You know, currently, treating members of staff, losing good members of staff that I felt we didn't treat very well that that's sad um and sometimes i get very sad when i feel i have communicated something well and people just still don't get it and that makes me cross with myself but on the whole i'm pretty lucky you know i'm pretty lucky thank you so much from the bottom of my heart actually johnny for our conversation today it's been really a lot of fun. I've just had to hold my laughter quite a bit during that. It was enlightening and I know it's inspired me enormously and it's going to inspire a lot of people who listen to it. Bowdoin is such a beloved brand and it certainly makes us all very proud to be British. Every week I ask my guests to write a letter to their younger selves. I don't know what you've written, but this is one I just absolutely can't wait <laughs> to hear. So thank you, Johnny. And uh, it's over to you. You're very kind, Holly. Thank you very much. So when I was writing this letter, I was trying, trying to think about the things that I was good at and the things I was bad at. And I think like so much in life, there, there are balances to be struck. I think the most the most important thing I would say to myself um, as a younger person is is the, you have to seek the truth. Um, you have to be yourself. And what does that mean? And I, I think there are two things that matter, um, the, the two ways of defining it. One is what I call internal things, which are kind of right brain things, authenticity, intuition, spontaneity, uh, which are as important as left brain things. And when I was 18, uh, I didn't really understand my right brain and my life until then, and arguably still is a lot, is, is a series of duties um, to please my parents, to impress my friends, rather than about being true to myself. 
My parents thought they were honest, but they weren't really, nor was I. And my, my childhood, uh, somebody once said that, you know, my, our family homes are, are stuffed with herds of elephants in every room. And in my case, there were many elephants. There were so many things we, we weren't allowed to talk about. And actually, I was brought up to believe that, that biting my lip was normal and a great virtue. And I, I think that was a something I really suffered from. I'm, I'm not blaming my parents. It was just a, that, a generational thing. And I, I didn't get enough feedback, honest feedback about my character. Um, I got some, but never enough. I think, you know, listening and learning and, and dealing with your own weaknesses is, is such an important thing. Uh, and many businesses, in my opinion, go under or struggle because the founder doesn't listen closely enough to his, his or her customers or his or her staff or tries to hide their weaknesses. And I think a good team uh, cannot tolerate any elephants in the room. But one of the upsides of my childhood was that I had a strong father and he told me off all the time. And as a result, I kind of listened. I think the external truths I was quite good at, the left brain truths, but there was some... There was some prejudice in my life, and I think, you know, being prejudiced is another terrible uh, mistake. You know, I was prejudiced against the internet. I've been prejudiced against certain categories of clothing. I'm prejudiced against maxi dresses. I'm prejudiced against jumpsuits. You know, all these things that I was wrong about, and I think you have to be prejudice-free, and you have to listen. You know, why are customers not buying that product? Why are dress returns so high in Germany? Why is the staff turnover amongst junior shoot producers so high? And, you, you know, quite often your team don't give you the right answers and, and you have to follow your hunch. Like, I don't, that's not, that's, you're not telling me the real truth here. And you, you have to be a bit unpopular in trying to get to the truth. And equally, uh, there may be things about your own behavior which um, you think are acceptable, but actually you're a complete twat and you need to be told you're a twat. My wife and my children constantly tell I'm a, constantly tell me I'm a twat. They're very opinionated, you know, and you just have to listen and, and it's painful, but it needs to be confronted. I talked a bit about, you know, the right brain not being developed. And I think when I, when I was, in, when I was 18, I, I didn't know who I was and I was, was very duty driven. Um, and I did a job that, that was very well paid, uh, but I was useless at it and I loathed it. And I think I would say to myself then, the most important thing is to develop your, your passions. And in my case, um, they were very hard to find because they were so deep un, in, in my personality. But in fact, my real passion was, was creative. It was, you know, I loved, sounds a bit pervy but I love women I love I was not a blokey bloke and actually I had a creative side of my personality that wasn't at all developed there's a book that I would have read Jim by Jim Collins and there's a lot of rubbish self-help books but Jim Collins has written this wrote this book called Good to Great and he talked about the two things that um, if you can answer these questions well you will be both happy and successful and the one one of the questions is what can you be best at and the other question is what do you love doing and if you can find something where you can marry those two 
uh, you will be happy. So that's my first thing. Be honest, seek the truth, be yourself, listen to feedback. The second thing, which I was actually quite comfortable with, and I, I would encourage myself to be more of, is take risks. Um, and I think people misunderstand risk. People think risk is just about, you know, uh, risking all their money on one thing. But actually, it's it's a more simple thing than that. And it's all about not being afraid of being laughed at. And I was terrified of being laughed at. I was terrified of being humiliated. I was terrified of taking a risk. And it's possibly quite normal for a young person. Um, but, you know, when, when, when you have so much invested in you and you've had a privileged upbringing as I had done, it's not surprising that you're not willing to take risks, but actually it's only by taking risks that you can be successful. Um, uh, you know, for most British people, uh, there's a very comfortable way of living that doesn't involve taking risks. And failure is this sort of terribly frowned upon thing. But in America, which is a much healthier economy, in my view, it's because they're very comfortable with failure. They take risks. You know, as a young boy, you, you, you make lemonade and you sell it at the end of your drive. Uh, and it doesn't matter if it doesn't work. When I interview people from America, you look at their CVs, and a lot of them have got lots of, they've been fired many, many times. And that's perfectly normal. And they kind of say, oh, well, it didn't work out. I wasn't really good at it. In this country, people hide the fact they've been fired. And it's just a really shameful thing. But in my view, it's not shameful at all. I think if you're not willing to take a risk, then you don't deserve to succeed. And people are terrified. I might put my house on the line because I didn't had no choice because I was about to go under. But actually, at thinking about it, if I'm if I wasn't willing to do that, I didn't deserve to succeed. You know, why is a house more important than a happy career? People are so obsessed about property here and not losing everything. But actually, that's what you have to do to succeed. Um, James Dyson, who is a bit of a hero of mine once said, being successful, there's noth nothing in it. You learn nothing. And it's only through failure that you learn. The other things that, that I was quite good at that I would say don't apologize for, number one, determination. You have to be determined and don't apologize for being a bit single-minded. You know, you do have to give up stuff in order to be happy. Jam tomorrow is a million times sweeter than jam today. Uh, and I did, you know, doing a job that you love, which is badly paid, is much better than doing a well-paid job you hate because it will probably, you'll probably earn a lot more money later on. Um, attention to detail, similar point, you know, people get cross with me because I'm so obsessed about, um, you know, giving the right wine at dinner and making sure the plates are warm and making sure that the every aspect of our clothing, the buttons are really important. And people think, oh, God, he's he's off on one. But, you know, he's a terrible control freak. But, you know, I, this label of uh, being a control freak is so uh, misapplied because everybody wants to control some part of their lives. Um, but I think it's it's actually another way of saying he's a leader or he's, he's got good attention to detail, both of which are important. The fourth thing I would say to myself is, you know, don't uh, apologize for developing good people skills. You know, I used to go to lots of parties. My parents would always insist, whoever I met, I'd show an interest in them. Wherever they came from, whatever their background, you know, I had to make them feel good and show an interest in their lives. And that has been 
uh, something I'm very, very thankful for because it's really helped me. We're in a people game and you, you have to um, engage with people. And I'm very grateful. I would, you know, just throw yourself at life. I say to my children, you know, you, my, my middle daughter's just gone to university in Spain and she's a bit nervous. And I've said, darling, just in any opportunity to meet people, just take it. And it, you won't necessarily find the perfect person the first week. It'll take you a couple of weeks. But, you know, you enroll in an art class, you know. You've heard about various people who, who are friends of friends. Well, go and meet them, have a drink with them and, you know, just connect with them. And, uh, you know, connecting, being able to connect with people is something that is terribly important. So my last point is really about balances. And I think young people, as I'm sure I was very much of this opinion, think that there's a simple answer, that there's just one mantra you must follow. But that's not the case. And everything is a balance. And you just have to try and strike the right balance. You know, life is a, there's a balance between duty and fulfillment. You know, you've got to contribute to society, but you've also got to be honest about yourself without descending into self-obsession or emotional incontinence, which is, I fear, rather rife in this, in this age. I think you have to understand the balance between the left and the right brain. You have to be good at, you have to be logical and you also have to be intuitive. You've got to be a professional and an amateur. You've, you've got to be rigorous and a bit German and a bit obsessive and good at spreadsheets, but you've also got to enjoy the glass of champagne as well. You've got to be able to empathize. Um, and I think British people are very good at that. Which I mean, you know, we as a nation are quite good at, you know, um, understanding those two sides of life. Um, you've got to be confident, but you've also got to be humble. Um, that, you know, you can do whatever you want, uh, but you've also got to admit when you can't do it. And, and as I said earlier, dealing with your own shortcomings. And lastly, and as I've kind of said already, embrace risk without being reckless, you know, because actually taking risks is, is what life's all about and, and trying things and, and encouraging whew, others to take risks um, is, is really great. And my, my children are, um, they have many qualities. I think the thing that I most, I love them the most was that they take risks. And they, they're all, um, they're brave riders. Uh, they, they, they go, they get stuck in. And I think that's something that, um, I wish I'd done a bit more. And, and failure is, is not a sin. And you just have to, to bounce back and, and, and to use the American phrase, fail better. Oh, thank you. I, um, what a privilege to um, hear that. And I believe that anyone who's going to listen to that is going to take so much. You poured so much in there and um, you've given so much there. And for me personally, I feel very teary because um, you touch on so many things that we as entrepreneurs or, or people who are striving to grow their dreams and um, and I'm going to play this one, I don't know how many times well, over. So thank you very I'm much I'm for that. I'm a terrible blubber. Well, thank you very much for sharing a lot with us today.
If you've enjoyed this episode with Johnny Bowden, I'd love to suggest listening to my conversation with Will Butler Adams, OBE, the CEO of Brompton Bikes. You can find any of my past episodes by searching Conversations of Inspiration wherever you get your podcasts. And if we've helped or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support really does mean the world to me. It helps spread the word and will inspire more people to build a life they love. And for all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. 